Welcome to State Craftiness. In our first episode, Joanne set us our tasking. So what I want you to please do over the next two seasons of this podcast is to unpack what on earth influence means and how states go about seeking to achieve it. We were at the halfway point of Joanne's quest now, trying to figure out if all these projects delivered the influence we thought they did. And I was getting a combination of clarity and confusion. Clearly, every state thought supporting the police was a way of getting influence. But figuring out whether that was so proved a real tough investigation. China might not have been in the foreground, yet everyone knew that it was very much in the background when it came to decisions about telecommunications and cables. And all the front of centre gender reform stuff was derided, even by the people who worked in the area, yet at the same time, quiet work going on in the background was generating influence and changing norms. We were also experiencing our own problems in the background. We'd received so many brush-offs, we could have developed an episode entitled Not Hearing Back From People and Why. Because even mentioning the subject of this podcast, Statecraft, was enough to generate heebie-jeebies among many we tried to interview. Interview requests were sent out, tentatively agreed to, and then no one showed up. There was worry that anyone working for a Western donor program and speaking about their work would get hauled in for a telling off. Someone we had lined up to do some work for us ghosted us in quite the most comical fashion. When we invited someone to come on and talk in the telecommunications episode, this individual replied with one of the most thoughtful no's I've ever received and getting to the very heart of the issue. This individual wrote that, quote, knowing everything in the regional dynamics of the geopolitical competition and the ability to publicly comment on it are two different things. Maybe this explained the careful, positive language of diplomacy and why every meeting we'd see referenced on Twitter or other social media platforms was hailed as more impactful than the last. It's simply safer to communicate that way. And it wasn't just me. Our freelancer, Godfrey Capdigao in Port Moresby, was having similar troubles. Hey, Gordon. So just a little bit of an update for you. I know it was a bit of a stretch, but I managed to get in contact with some of the professionals here who work in spaces like the National Research Institute and the ABC Media Development Initiative, and even folks who've attended and even run training programs in places like the Labor Department and the Agriculture Department. But since my last bit of contact with them, which was about uh, like a week ago, they've become a little bit cagey to speak about some of the topics I've approached them with. So at the moment, I'll give them a little bit of time, I'll hold out for a few days, but I'd be a little surprised if they get back to me before my deadline, or even at all. I thought I'd give Joanna a ring back, 
Like all good laborers in the consulting business, it's always a good idea to check in regularly with the boss. You've come to the sage, Joanne, for advice, have you? <laughs> it's called a risk management strategy, Joanne. Look, it's not surprising because one of the things that, that the literature says about how individuals operate in these kind of environments is that there is a gap between the individual and the institution and it's not sufficiently acknowledged. So individuals are the ones that are implementing policy, but they are constrained by the institutional environments that they're in. There's the logic of appropriateness that they feel bound by certain behaviour and certain thinking is logical and others is not. There are also huge incentives if you are seen to toe the line and, and penalties if you go outside the boundaries and heaven forbid you become a whistleblower. So, you know, it's not surprising, but it's exciting that you're doing this work because we do know how important individuals are. And I think we talked about this back in episode one is this assumption in a lot of the statecraft literature that somehow the people implementing statecraft are these disembodied actors that you can just substitute one from the other. So I'm going to send an Australian diplomat. Oh, well, if that one can't go, I'll, I'll just roll another one off the production line. But actually, each person is a body, has a body, has a personality, a history. I think there's this gap that's coming out of the work that you're doing between what the institutions and the state at home is thinking about what's happening when it sends these bodies out abroad. So none of these things that you're saying are shocking, but it's, what is shocking, I think, is that it's not talked about or acknowledged enough. And that's the exciting thing about what's coming out of these podcast episodes is that we're shining a light on something that's not previously really being considered in any great detail. So I've been running around the place trying to get interviews and ghosted by all and sundry. Like, what, what have you been up to? Oh, yes, we have not been just, you know, sipping pina coladas here in Adelaide. We have been busy beavers as well. So Dr. Michael Rose has been working with me here at the University of Adelaide since about July last year on a story map, which for those of you listening at home that had never heard of one before, as I hadn't myself before we started this process, it's an interactive online resource that presents information in an engaging way and unsurprisingly on maps. So what Mike and I have done is identify a whole range of different tools of statecraft that external states, and we've limited ourselves to external states just because for the moment there's a lot of data out there. We had to we had to have some boundaries. The whole range of tools of statecraft that they are deploying in the Pacific Islands and Timor-Leste. A lot of the ones that you're discussing in your podcasts, Gordon, plus some extras as well. And what the story map represents is it illustrates on maps what these different tools of statecraft are and where and how they are being deployed across the Pacific. So as you scroll through, you can see, for example, where cultural diplomacy is happening, where different cultural centres opened and what those cultural centres involve. You can see where scholarships are being offered and who is going on scholarships, the media presence of outside actors, where they have their embassies that have gone on, both people coming into the Pacific, but also Pacific diplomats going out to visit their partners. Okay, Gordon, so the quest is continuing. What is coming up next? Yes, I've checked my contract and I can't get out of it, so I'm going to continue with the quest. We're hoping to do, <laughs> we're hoping to do one on scholarships, um, which everyone tells us is the surefire thing in statecraft. Even Hugh White, whose devil-may-care approach to giving his opinion on things I very much admired, was convinced that scholarship programs was a place 
where overseas development assistance or ODA could have major influence. I am and I have been for a very long time very sceptical about the role of ODA in all its various forms as a way of building influence over the policies of other countries. And so I've long, long believed that the idea that these countries and their leaders will be more inclined to favour our interests over how they perceive their own country's interests, because that's always the choice. They have their own perception of their own country's interests, and do they shade those interests in order to support Australia's interests because they're grateful for the fact that we help them build a bridge or help to distribute medicines or gave them a governance program about the way they run their finance ministry? It just defies the, the simplest, you know, it's one of those propositions which, you know, you'd have to be a government to believe it. I do think there's one way in which something that falls under the classic ODA umbrella can genuinely create influence. And that is the effect on individuals in your target country of their experience of, of your country. And I guess this is most dramatically demonstrated when people have been educated in a country, for example. I mean, this is purely anecdotal, but I remember once when I was working for Hawkey in the midst of one of our periodical blues with uh, Mahathir's government in Malaysia, and I was uh, having a very difficult conversation with uh, my Malaysian counterpart, head of Mahathir's foreign policy office. And we got to a sticky point and he smiled and said, you know, I did my degree at Adelaide. My daughter is doing her degree at the University of Queensland. My son is studying in WA. You can have that. Uh, you know, it was just a very sort of artificially vivid, but, but his personal experience of Australia now, it's a trivial issue, I mean, you know, in the grand sweep of history, but I did think to myself, oh, okay, educating people really makes a difference. I've always argued that if we really want to preserve our influence in the Southwest Pacific, we just want to make sure there's as many possible future leaders are educated in Australia. Susanna Patton is director of the Southeast Asia Program at the Lowy Institute. She's the author of a fascinating report entitled Crumbling Cornerstone, Australia's Education Ties with Southeast Asia, in which she writes about how while education is referenced as the bedrock of Australia's relationship with Southeast Asia, these connections are weakening, posing a risk to Australia's influence. As far as I'm aware, there's not a lot of really hard evidence to support that idea that just because you study in a country, you are filled with affection and attachment to that country. But I think the general view, which sort of I would subscribe to, is that on balance, if you study in Australia, it's more likely than not that you're going to feel more favourable to Australia than you otherwise would have. There is the phenomenon of familiarity breeds contempt, as well as to know me is to love me. But I think in most cases, it's more about the, the fact that people who've studied in Australia, when they go home, they at least know how Australian systems works. So that means that there is that point of connection perhaps to establish future cooperation or collaboration because they'll have some concepts, say they're working in the education sector, they've studied education policy in Australia. On balance, you'd have to think that would make them more likely and more interested to work with Australia in the field of education policy than a country to which they had no connection at all, like Peru or something. 
Perhaps what we value, though, varies. Like for Australia, I think when we think about these relationships, we tend to think about the access, the influence, the people-to-people relationships, and perhaps the development aspects as well. Whereas I think for many regional countries, they're primarily thinking of it in terms of developing their human capacity. And that is a priority for most countries. Do you want to be a leader in your field and join an inspiring networks of change makers? Apply now for an Australia Awards Scholarship. More than a degree, you will gain a world-class education and a life-changing experience in Australia. We support you to live and study successfully. Our application process is open and competitive, providing equal opportunity to all eligible people. Just great to get your sense about what is the spread of countries that students from Timor-Leste go to study? Is Australia the major place that they go to or is it somewhere Is it somewhere else? So only a small percentage of students from Timor-Leste come to Australia. So according to UNESCO data, it's probably less than 4% of all students who are studying internationally from Timor-Leste. That's very small and it's only around sort of fewer than 100 students a year. So of course, you have to remember that Timor-Leste has a very small population. So actually that's not so few when you consider that, say, we've got about 20,000 students from Indonesia with a population that's, you know, 270 times larger than Timor-Leste. But even so, I think the, the major reason why Australia is a small percentage of Timorese students studying internationally is that Indonesia is overwhelmingly the preferred destination for those students. Almost 70% of students from Timor-Leste who are studying internationally choose to go to Indonesia. And it's pretty clear, I think, what the reasons for that are. It's much closer, much more affordable, more cultural similarities, and maybe also the language might be easier for them than coming to Australia. I think it's pretty clear to me that English language proficiency would be quite a big barrier for Australia to expand the Australia Awards significantly in Timor-Leste. I was actually reading a DFAT report about the Australia Awards in Timor-Leste and one really interesting thing that stood out to me was that they actually found in their evaluation that a lack of English language proficiency was an obstacle to the alumni of the Australia Awards staying in contact with people in Australia. So if you're thinking about a lack of English language proficiency being an obstacle even after you've completed your studies in Australia, then I think that's quite a start finding. To find out more about scholarships and their influence, I thought I'd speak to a man who has been the recipient of support to study in Australia, New Zealand and Indonesia, as well as being someone who has sat in almost every conceivable governmental chair in the Democratic Republic of Timor-Leste. My name is Dionisio. Da Costa Bava Suarez. I was the foreign minister of Timor-Leste. Prior to that, I've also been uh, given uh, other portfolios in the government, including the coordinating minister for public administration affairs and also justice. And before that, I was the minister of justice. So um, I've also been briefly part of the national parliament of Timor-Leste and a short-lived government uh, of around eight months in 2019-17. 
And of course, I've been holding different portfolios. I was the co-chairman of the Commission of Friendship between Timor-Leste and Indonesia, looking at the KCC 1999 uh, referendum, which caused over a thousand people killed. And of course, the destruction of Timor-Leste, which led to the UN intervention to hold a referendum in Timor-Leste at that time. Besides that, I'm also a lecturer with the University of Timor-Leste. I'm still a lecturer at the Faculty of Social and Political Science, but I'm also teaching law at two private universities. And now, uh, apart from teaching, I'm also working with the President of the Republic as the coordinator and advisor for international relations. Denisio is also an academic. A scholarly book he co-edited called Out of the Ashes, was one of the first books I read when I moved to the country. He's also a songwriter, singer, and guitarist. That song playing in the background is from his YouTube channel. I had to begin by asking Denisio whether he slept much. <laughs> well, I'm enjoying it, you know, uh, and uh, the motivation is that because you want to contribute to this country, uh, particularly in this first stage of its independence, and uh, you know, uh, it's where he's trying to actually identify you know, which path that it needs to actually choose, you know, to define its future. So it's very exciting. You're perfectly placed to be able to talk about this issue as to whether people that are now senior political leaders like you that get scholarships to Indonesia, New Zealand, and to Australia, the argument is that if you're Indonesia or if you're Australia or New Zealand, that if you give a scholarship to someone junior, like a Mr. Denisio Babo Suarez, that in the future, this will be useful because you'll be able to call up Dr. Denisio Babo Suarez and, and say to him, hey, don't you remember me? You did your master's in New Zealand. You did your bachelor's in Indonesia. You did your PhD at the Australian National University. Does it work that way in real life? <laughs> Something that you can't deny is that emotional attachments to these institutions that you've been to will remain there forever. And of course, your passion for the country that actually once accepted you to live there and, you know, uh, facilitated your studies. But, you know, as someone who has been involved at the middle and high positions of a country where you um, are required to think and make decisions about you know, the life of your country, the life of your people, the economy, and all those kind of things, you often come to um, a situation where you need to balance between A and B, B and C, and also you need to make sure that any decision that you make will not jeopardize your country. But, you know, I would say that you're also trying to make in such a way that you um, don't hurt the feelings of institutions and countries that you once attached to. But I think also it is because after living in these countries, studying there, knowing their people, their culture, their way of life, you know, the way people treat each other and all these kind of things, it really influences you. And you feel more confident when dealing with these countries, which you know of, no matter whatever decision that you have to make to defend the interests of your country. So you um, kind of weigh up between A and B, but without having any intention of jeopardizing either side. I think it's great you mentioned Indonesia, because we often we don't think of Indonesia in relation to kind of Western statecraft, but yet it's an incredibly important actor in, still in Timor-Leste. <laughs> what do you understand more about Indonesia, about New Zealand, and about Australia from having lived there? as, say, compared to someone who's never lived there in those three countries? As far as Indonesia is concerned, it's because 
First of all, Indonesia occupied Timor-Leste for 24 years. And we spent, apart from learning Indonesia, going to Indonesian schools, from secondary to university, and also living in Indonesia uh, during my schooling years, of course, has influenced a lot the way I look at the Indonesians. And also because we shared, the, you know, half of the island. And also the culture is quite similar. And the changes that actually are taking place in Indonesia after Suharto resembled very much what Timor-Leste had gone through. And Timor-Leste is proud to be part of that struggle to change Indonesia or democratize uh, the country. So um, in many ways, we could say that I still feel the same similarities. And also particularly because you speak the language. Indonesian, not only speak, but I also write perfectly. New Zealand spent about two and a half years studying, doing master's degree. And I think I like the environment and the people. That's the first English-speaking country that I was introduced to, and the people, the the culture. And, you know, New Zealand is a very interesting country because that's the country which adopts two languages and use them in parallel, English and, and the Maori language. And, of course, the Maori language, if you link back to Timor-Leste, they bear lots of similarities. Australia is a is a country more closer to home. So being there was a privilege. Also um, getting to know the politics and also getting to know the people and also understand how politics and the ordinary people way of thinking. And Australia is pretty much a country where you could look at as a model as well. It's a very democratic country. It has um, its own politics at the top level, but it also has its people who actually say a lot. And I must tell you that, you know, over the years during Timor-Leste's resistance, politicians in Australia, of course, have made a decision that contradicts very much their own people's wish you could say that Timor-Leste has benefited a lot from the Australian public opinion, uh, which also influences a lot the politicians in making their decisions. I tried every which way I could to probe Denisio for studies of specific instances where another state tried to influence him. But like an adroit practitioner of statecraft, he didn't give me a direct answer. And that's Denisio again with his song, Mehi Furak, Beautiful Dream. The music video has Denisio sitting in various high-backed throne-type chairs popular in Southeast Asia, being wistful by the ups and downs of young love. But the musical style is not Southeast Asian. It's identified with Portuguese in origin and speaks to the continuing relationship and mutual influence that the former colonial power has on Timor-Leste. In the Pacific, we often frame the game of statecraft as taking place with players from the great and middle powers, like the United States, China, and Australia, in competition and in relationship with the states of the region. Yet in Timor-Leste, there's another power at play in the game of influence, and that is Portugal. Nearly twice as many East Timorese study in Portugal than Australia. Add in other Portuguese-speaking countries, such as Brazil, Mozambique, and the special administrative region of Macau, and that figure becomes three times as much. To find out more about the Portuguese influence on education, I asked a man whose linguistic repertoire bears testament to the various outside influences on the country, as he introduces himself in English, Tetun, Portuguese, and Indonesian. My name is Aderito de Jesus Suarez. How many are Aderito de Jesus Suarez? 
Shamumi Adderi to the Zusuarez, Namasaya Adderi to the Zusuarez. And he's a crooner and a songwriter too. Yeah, I can sing. You know, I... <laughs> well, I composed a song actually when I was studying in Indonesia. My guitarist friend, Jose Zaklinu, uh, uh, published this record piece in Dili and sang by this very top senior uh, Timurese singer. His name is John Minta. When we were still studying in Indonesia, he was already very famous. So he sang that song that I composed. And apparently, back in 2000 and, you know, 2000, 2001, you and apparently used to put this song in UNTV because that song is like, you know, the spirit is how to bring the Timurists together, yeah? So they kind of sent that message to the refugees, Timur refugees in, in West Timor, actually. <laughs> Before talking about the scholarship, I mean, on the role of Portugal, you know, in building the nationalism of Timor-Leste, I think that we can't deny the history, you know, especially after 75 and come to the 80s, how Portugal, you know, not, not because of the good heart of the government of Portugal, but I think also because of the pressure of a Portuguese community to their own government to take strong position on Timor, yeah? I think that's kind of switch the whole perception of many Timorese to, towards Portugal. And, and, you know, I think that's really affect the whole nationalism, you know, the language, the culture, the religion, of course, we can't, you know, we can't ignore that, that play important role. You know, that's kind of old intertwined in building the sense of nationalism of Timorese resistance. And, you know, and up, you know, I think we can't deny that, you know, up until now, after the, you know, 20 years of independence, the Portuguese influence is still quite strong. I mean, you know, if you can use that in a term by the Indian writer Chatterjee, what he call as the, the inner spiritual domain in the context of Timur's identity, Timur's uh, sense of nationalism, that's, that's contribute a lot. And let's put an assumption, if in 24 years of the struggle, if Portugal ignored Timur, you know, denied Timur, even, you know, uh, you know, forgot about Timur, I think the attitude will be different of Timorese to watch Portuguese. I lived in Timor-Leste for many years, and I listened into many a woebegone conversation with Australians about why Timorese could not just slough off their Portuguese identity. English-speaking advisors would always fulminate about how Portuguese advisors were more embedded in terms of influencing the government. They would become really furious when they realized that the government of Timor-Leste was even paying the fees of many of the Portuguese-speaking advisors. Yet Portugal's role is integral in what Adorito called the inner spiritual domain of Timor-Leste. And it gives Portugal a strong, soft power currency for keeping influence. I mean, if we compare Portugal with the uh, immediate neighbor of like Indonesia and, and Australia, you know, Portugal lack of economic influence in Timor, but I think they, they play this very strong soft power through education, culture, you know, tradition, you know, religions, 
And I think that's one of the very strong influence that, you know, Portugal play these days. And you see like so many Timorese that went to study in Portugal and not only through scholarship, you know, either you know, from the government of Portugal or a scholarship provided by Timorese government, but also like even some middle class in Dili that even the kids didn't get scholarship, they managed to afford to send their kids to Portugal. If they can afford to Portugal, they will prefer to send the kids to Portugal, not to Indonesia. That's, that will be different, yeah? And of course, it will be too expensive to send to Australia. So, so you have this kind of, I mean, in terms of statecraft, I mean, uh, you know, Portugal has this very strong strategy to soft power. In the 90s, I think I was studying already in Indonesia, and there was a, I think, European Cup in Europe, and Portugal came final, if I'm mistaken. And it was because of the time difference. They play, I think, early in the morning in Timor, yeah? That's like Timor time. And the whole deal was like very quiet because people stand, you know, sitting before the TV, watching Portugal play against whatever team in Europe. And of course, all these public servants came to the office late. And Indonesian government was like, you know, furious, like, what's happened with these people here? Apparently, they were watching Portugal play in the morning, yeah? So that was really different, uh, how they perceive and how they view uh, Portugal. And now, of course, like, you know, someone like Ronaldo play, you know, with Real Madrid, yeah, in the morning. And all the morning time, you know, and people will wake up in the morning, four o'clock, really on the street with Portugal flag, yelled and, you know, supported Portugal. Yeah? So I think that's very, very strong connection in that level of, you know, culture. Dionisio and Adorido are people referred to in Teton as Emabot, big people, members of the political elite. The sorts to be wined, dined and their opinions mined and parsed by diplomats and officials in Dili. Their experiences from studying and living overseas beneficial for themselves as they negotiated for and represented their nation. They are savvy enough to know what to say and what not to say. To use a football metaphor, both Adorito and Denisio are in the upper echelons of the Premier League. But what about the lesser known players, those who are playing in the lower leagues of statecraft? What have been their experiences regarding scholarships? We sent our fearless reporter Paula Torres out to find some younger East Timorese who have been recipients of overseas scholarships and quizzed them about their experiences over coffee. And she came armed with what she thought would be her killer question to elicit what influence these scholarships had on what state team these young East Timorese supported. Let's start with Denilson da Costa Dutel, 25 years old, and just returned from a scholarship in China, one of the 10 to 20 East Timorese who do so each year. He studied international relations. I graduated back in 2014 in one of the private schools in Dili, namely St. Paul College. Before going to China, I was actually studying international relations uh, in one of the universities in um, Timor-Leste. Yeah, I stayed there for a while before I was awarded the scholarship to study in China uh, back in 2016. You have, I mean, I just recently have uh, heard that you have Hong Kong. Like, you really 
good Korean language. Yeah, because you know, uh, before going to our university, we had to study um, Mandarin at least for a year in order to get into the university. You have to learn Chinese first, you know, pass um, certain requirements in order to get into the university, something like that. So I passed the test. Um, in English, it is called IELTS. Every, everybody knows, yeah, for sure, IELTS. In Mandarin, they call it HSK. If you want to go to the university, you really have to pass the test in order to get into the university. That's the, the requirement. So I passed it with flying colors. And yeah, I was admitted to my university. After coming back from China, I actually worked for at least four international companies, Shanghai Construction Group, um, China Harbor, China We. So pretty much everything about, about China. Yeah, so I worked as an interpreter, coordinator, safety officer. So I have different roles. Why you choose to go to China to take your undergraduate? Well, to be honest, I was applying for at least four different countries. I applied to US, to UWC. I seized my moment, yeah. Um, for instance, if I have something, if I get a grip on something, for instance, uh, I really have the Chinese scholarship. Automatically, I will reject other scholarship because you know they offered me the scholarship first. Though I was intending to apply to New Zealand scholarship, but I was already being awarded the scholarship to study in China, so I had it. Um, uh, one of the biggest challenges, um, I think, language barrier. You know, I was I was in a strange land. You know, especially when I had to go to the market to buy some stuff, you know, they spoke Chinese to me. It was so difficult to understand because, you know, you just arrive in that country. In order to survive in a country that you haven't visited in your life and you think this country is so new, you know nothing about this country, it's better to learn the language as quick as possible in order to get used to with the environment. My teacher said I was one of the hardworking students in the classroom and I was awarded as the second best student. Mm. What are your most favorite subjects in university? Yeah, diplomacy. diplomacy. Yeah, diplomacy. International, uh, yeah, diplomacy. Why? Because, you know, if you learn the art of diplomacy, you know, like our country is such a small country, you know? The reason why our country, our, our country got liberated from Indonesia because of the diplomacy. Hope you connect to it. Thank you. <laughs> Did you enjoy study there? Oh yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed my mm -hmm. my time in Beijing. At first, it was it was strange. It was difficult for me because you know, you met certain people. They had a unique culture. They had their unique way of greeting people. You know, sometimes the Chinese they they look at you but they don't want to talk to you. Yeah, it's pretty strange, you know, mm -hmm. because. Not that they don't want to talk to you. They they have this weird stereotype. Like they're quite shy. They don't want to talk to strangers. Unlike Westerners. Have you keep in touch with countries since you get back to Timor? For example, like embassy? Yeah, yeah. Still? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If they organize a cultural event, they always invite us to go and share our experience with with the next scholars who will travel to China. Yeah, we we still get in touch, yeah. What lesson that you took from that experience? 
like you say about failure, right? What are the takeaway lessons? For me, failure is the beginning of success. We, we all have to fail first, you know, in order to learn. And just as Danielson was relaxing, Paula hit him with her own pop quiz in which Danielson had to choose a specific answer. Coffee or tea? Tea. Tea present. <laughs> United States or China? Oh, that's pretty difficult. I would say both. How about one? The only option. Okay, I'll go for China. Right. Go oh, China. Instagram or WhatsApp? Instagram. The last one, in relationship or ghosting? Mm, ghosting. Really? you ghosting person? Okay. Uh, I'm ghosting my other girls. Oh. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm joking. <laughs> the next person Paula found was Adarido de Rosario da Cunha Mambarish, now working for an environmental consultancy in Dili. Adarita was one of the 30 or so Timorese who studied in U.S. universities on scholarships. Paula asked Adarito to volunteer his opinion on how he fared in the volunteer state, Tennessee. Uh, do you think being a scholarship student is a, is, is a privilege? It is a very like huge privilege for me to really like get the scholarship because it, it really helps me with my career and then also like my goals that I want to like achieve and also it helps with like for example like when you come back you get a job and then it helps me to you know like after I get the job and I can I'm able to support my family also of course look after my siblings those who are still like in school like I you know help them with that so it's financially it's really important in the company that I work with like we build technologies that uh, can tackle climate change. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Coffee present. <laughs> United States or China? Oh, United States. Yeah, of course. Yes. <laughs> Paula's full interviews with Danielson and Adarito are up on the story map that Joanne spoke about earlier in the episode. I really enjoyed listening to Paula's conversations with Danielson and Adarito, and I found it personally heartening too, because one of the most professionally advantageous things I ever did was leave Northern Ireland to study, albeit for me it was a quick skip across the Irish Sea to England. But like them, it transformed me. It made me see the world in a different way, and it took me on the path to where I am today. I've bookmarked the names of Danielson and Adarito, and I'll be fascinated to see what they'll be doing with their lives and the influence that the scholarships they received will have had on this trajectory. Paula's conversations, together with mine, highlighted that Hugh White very much has a point. Scholarships seem to be one of the most effective ways for states to acquire long-term influence over the individuals that receive them. It's a subtle effect to be sure, but with discernible long-term impacts. If you're an examiner, you would probably give scholarships an A grade in the state craftiness sphere.
In the next episode, we'll burrow deep into the vaults of financial management to discover what statecraft dividends accrue when money is given as loans by one state to governments in the region. I'm your host, Gordon Peake. Mark Peter Nataras and Shana Ryan at Cultural Pulse produce the podcast. Joanne Wallace at University of Adelaide is the executive producer. Luther Knut is the sound engineer and producer. This activity was supported by the Australian government through a grant by the Australian Department of Defence to the University of Adelaide. The views expressed are those of the authors and are not necessarily those of the Australian government, the Australian Department of Defence or the University of Adelaide. 